Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Good morning, everyone. It is lovely to be back. I like coming to Manchester. I've, as Tom said, been quite a lot over a number of years now. And people, every time I stay down south, I've been coming to Manchester, people say, oh dear, grey and wet and miserable. And it almost never is. I've had like universally lovely, bright, crisp experiences in Manchester until today, which is, is a shame. But I'm hoping that on a grey, slightly downcast day, the wonderful topics of salvation and the Book of Romans are going to cheer and delight us. This is one of my favourite, certainly, sessions to come and teach here. Such good news. And maybe therefore my opening encouragement is there's lots for us to learn and think about today. And our heads are going to be stretched and helped and equipped hopefully. But let's also let our hearts be moved. There's just wonderful um, gospel-centred truth to receive today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the doctrine of salvation first and then Romans, inverting the order I think we often do here, because I think talking about the doctrine first gives us some helpful um, kind of conceptual frameworks, which then helps us understand some of the complexities of Romans. So I'm hoping that getting some broad concepts in our minds is going to help us when we then work through Romans in the second session. So we're going to start with the doctrine of salvation, which arguably, I think, is one of the central doctrines of the Bible. And there are probably several sessions I could teach and start that way, but it's certainly one of the central themes, central doctrines of the Bible. And it's a really key topic for us to think about. It interacts with so many other doctrines, so many other aspects of Christian belief. It's quite a big doctrine. There's quite a lot of different kind of subtopics within it. And we'll get to some of those as we go through today and different approaches to it. So it's good to take some time to look at it. And the way I'm going to do that for us this morning is just to briefly give a quick introduction to what salvation is. And then to look at three kind of perspectives on the topic, three ways ways that we can think about the doctrine of salvation and we're kind of going to scratch the surface but I think that's a helpful way to begin to get a bit of an orientation in it. So let's start off with the key question, a bit of introduction of what is salvation? Salvation is about being rescued, it's about being delivered or spared, all these kind of words we could use for this and it's about both being rescued from something and being rescued for something. And I think the from bit we often kind of recognise and remember and see, the for thing we might not so easily remember or think about. And actually the concept of salvation in the Bible is applied very broadly. People are saved from all manner of different things. If you look at how the kind of word group of kind of salvation and related words is used, it's used for being saved from things like illness or from other nations, from enemies, whether they be individuals or corporate people, kind of nations it might be. Um, saved from dangerous situations. Salvation, salvation language is used about being spared from drowning, for example. Uh, salvation from slavery, salvation from oppression, lots of different ways the word is used. But ultimately, if we boil it all down in a biblical concept, salvation is from sin, both from its power and its punishment. Because all those other kind of negative things that we can get rescued from or saved from all boil down to, in the end, the impacts of sin in the world. And when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, primarily we're thinking about being saved from sin, both its power 
and also its punishment over, uh, that we deserve. And so salvation is freedom from the punishment we deserve from our sin, which is the punishment that God rightly and justly pours out on sin, God's wrath, the word we kind of use for his just, fair punishment of sin. And so ultimately we can say salvation is from God, as in we be saved from God. And again, we don't often think of that. And it is worth asking this thing or focusing this thing of what are we saved from? I remember a number of years ago now having dinner the lovely coupling of church I was in up north at the time, who had been Christians for decades, and wonderful, um, kind of, you know, solid Christian couple. And somehow it came up at dinner, they said, well, it's a funny language salvation, because they said, what are we actually saved from? And I was a little bit surprised to hear them say this, and I thought, but it is true, we don't talk maybe a lot about that. And then we began to talk about, well, actually, we are saved ultimately from God, because the right thing for God to do to sinners like us actually is to judge and to punish. And it's easier for us to talk about salvation without actually thinking, well, what are we saved from? And it's really important to realise ultimately we're saved from God, but also then we want to see we're saved for God. We're saved instantly, we're saved into relationship with him. The purpose of us being saved and free from the power and punishment of sin is in order that we might have relationship with God. They're saving out of something and being saved into something. And also a key biblical foundation is that salvation is always the work of God and always the gift of God to humans. So salvation is always by God. So we can say salvation is being rescued from God, through God, the Son, for God. God is every aspect of salvation. We're saved from him, saved from the wrath we deserve from him, saved by him, what he does through his son as the gift of salvation, and saved for him to be into relationship with him. Salvation is, or God is at the centre of the biblical doctrine of salvation. And so it makes sense, therefore, to have the first kind of perspective from which we could look at this doctrine is to talk briefly about salvation and God himself. Because something you might notice as you read through the scriptures is that salvation actually becomes one of the defining features of the God of the Bible, of the living God. When you get times in scripture when God is being um, defined and described, or particularly when God is being contrasted with the so-called gods of other nations around Israel and such like, the fact that he's a God who saves is one of the key defining features. It distinguishes the God of the Bible, the living God, from the other so-called gods of other nations. Just one example would be Isaiah 43, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, where God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. He's saying, I'm the one who saved. Those gods can't save you. I'm the one who does it. And so often an accusation brought against other so-called gods is the fact that they can't save. The way that, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, they point out, well, your so-called gods that you're worshipping, they're not really gods because they can't save. So again, Isaiah, Isaiah 46. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. He's trying to point out the folly of worshipping a god you've made. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. He's saying this God you worship doesn't hear you when you cry to it. It can't save you from your trouble. It's not a real God because the real God is a God who saves. 
Well, Jeremiah similarly says in Jeremiah 2, but where were your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble, for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. A time when Judah, the people of God, are worshipping false gods. If they can save you, let them arise. They can prove themselves to be gods if they can save you. But of course they can't. A defining feature of the living God is that he is the one who saves. And actually so much is it a defining feature that in scripture people talk about God as being salvation. It's so core to who he is that he has to be called salvation as it were. So after the Exodus, the um, kind of pivotal moment of salvation in the Old Testament story, there's the great song of Moses when he's celebrating the victory of them coming out of Egypt in Exodus 15. And they sing, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. He is my salvation. Or in Psalm 42, a, a very different context, not a context of celebration, but a context of someone wrestling with depression, really, and um, wrestling with their emotions. The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Salvation is so much who, what God does, that actually in biblical concepts, it's also kind of who he is. So salvation and God himself is one of the angles, uh, aspects, perspectives through which we can think about this doctrine. I can also point out that salvation flows from who God is and it reveals who God is. It reveals his character, who he really is at the core of his being. God saves always because of who he is, an outworking of that, not because of who we are or who anyone he saves is. Because actually it's just and right and really a responsibility of God to judge and punish sin. For God to be the just ruler of all is right and fitting that he punish sin. That's the kind of obligation on him. His obligation, what he's obliged to do, is to enact justice. The same isn't true when it comes to salvation. There's no obligation for God to save but he chooses to do so and that flows out of who he really is at the core of his being. Because he is, as we're so often told in these words throughout scripture, a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but also who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And those are words you'll find repeated time and time again, particularly through the Old Testament, as really the core description of who God is. The primary um, qualities and characteristics are, of God are that he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in this steadfast love. And salvation flows out of who God is. That means God isn't reluctant to save. He's eager to do so and it flows naturally from him. In fact, the eager to do so reminds me of one of my favourite verses, probably in the whole of Scripture, in Nehemiah 9, when I think it's the rededication of the new temple, Nehemiah is praying, and he is echoing those words from Exodus and other places, and he says, but you are a God ready to forgive. Or you could say eager to forgive. Isn't that just an encouraging thing? God is so, to the core of his being, is so much so that he is eager and desiring and ready to forgive. Salvation flows from who God is. And it's always rooted in who God is, what he does. It's never rooted in us, in any goodness in us, anything special in us, or in what we do. 
One example that would be Deuteronomy 7, when uh, God, well, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel about why it is that God has picked them out, saved them from slavery in Egypt, made them his people. And if you read what he says in Deuteronomy 7, he basically, well, he literally says, God has set his love on you because he loves you. And it sounds completely circular. God loves you because he loves you. But that's the whole point. It is circular. Because it's not because they were the greatest nation in terms of numbers or in terms of intellect or in terms of strength. It wasn't rooted in them at all. It was rooted in God's love. God loves them because he loves them because he loves them. Which actually means, in a sense, his love is unquestionable. It's rooted in him, not in them. The same is true for us. Think of the many statements in the New Testament about God being motivated by his love, by who he is to rescue us. God acts because of who he is, not because of who we are. And that's really assuring, reassuring, because that reminds us that none of this is dependent on us. Our ongoing salvation isn't dependent on us still being the, maybe the nice or good people we might think we were when God saved us. It was never based on that. It's always based on who God is. God isn't going to change, therefore our salvation is certain and is secure. And then we can also point out that God's acts of salvation show us what he's really like. If you want to get a feel for what is God really like, look at what he does in salvation. We've already said salvation flows from who God is, so it makes sense that when we look at the realities of salvation, we get an insight into who God actually is. The Apostle John summarises nicely, or kind of makes this point nicely in, um, in 1 John, one of his letters, 1 John 4. Anyone who does not know God, sorry, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, we'll come to that later, for our sins. The love of God is made manifest, it's kind of published, it's revealed, it's declared to the world through the fact that God sends his only son into the world that we might live through him. How do you get to know what God is really like? You look at his actions in salvation. And finally, salvation is ultimately for God's glory. Why does God save? God saves to bring us into relationship with him, but even that ultimately is to bring him glory. As God's salvation acts reveal who he is, we see what he's really like, we see how wonderful he is, it brings glory to him. It evokes worship in us. And so time and time again, the message through scripture or the indication in scripture is the ultimate reason that God acts in salvation is for his glory. Everything God does is motivated by showing how good he is so that worship comes to him, which is absolutely right and fitting because that's what he is deserving of as the God and Lord of all. So that's one aspect, one lens to think about the doctrine of salvation, to think of it in relation to God himself. Another aspect, another lens, is to think about salvation and the Bible's story. Actually, the story that the Bible tells through Genesis through to Revelation, the kind of thing you're tracking and tracing through the sessions of School of Theology, which can be very much understood as and told as a story of salvation. And always when reading through that Bible story to think actually what's going on in terms of salvation or in the key of salvation is a, a worthwhile thing to do. The Bible presents us with the story of salvation, not just kind of the propositions of salvation. We easily think of salvation and we think of a kind of a, a gospel equation of kind of God's love and Jesus' death plus my sin equals forgiveness, all of which is true, but actually the Bible has a much richer account of salvation, like a story account as well. 
Let's just quickly kind of run through that. He starts, of course, with creation and how things are meant to be. God's plan, God's desire to have his people living in his place under his rule and blessing. That's what Adam and Eve were doing. God's people in his place, the Garden of Eden, living with him under his rule and blessing. He was there with them. Everything was perfect as it should be. But of course, anyone who knows the Bible story knows it doesn't last very long because by chapter 3, things go wrong. Adam and Eve turn away from trusting God, trust the serpent. Instead, they, as Paul was saying in Romans 1, we'll see they worship the created rather than the creator. They trust the created rather than trusting the creator. At that moment, everything becomes damaged and broken. They're sent out of the garden and they're no longer God's people. They're no longer in God's place. They're no longer under God's rule and blessing. And so you have a huge problem for humanity from which we now need saving from. We know what we're meant to be in. We want to get back to, as it were, of the plan A in Eden. We know what's gone wrong. That we're being cast out of that. And so salvation is going to be being uh, removed from that bad situation back into how things are meant to be. But if you read the account of Genesis 3, you'll also spot, even right at the very, very beginning, there are those glimmers of hope of what's going to come. There's the talk of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. Even right as soon as the first sin is being committed, there's these hints that actually there is still hope. There's the fascinating thing of they're sent out of the garden, actually, we're told, in order that they don't eat from the tree of life and get stuck forever in this position of being fallen. So actually, even God sending them out of the garden, ultimately, is a sign that God wants to restore things. It actually is an act of grace. It's so they don't get trapped in this um, post-fall, this sin-impacted position. And so God is so much a God of salvation that as soon as humanity turns against him in first sins, as soon as all the problems enter the world, he's already talking about the fact and pointing to the fact that he's going to act in salvation. And the first few chapters, or after that, Genesis kind of 4 to 11, what we sometimes call the primeval history, kind of talk to us, or I guess teach us about the fact that God is a saviour. Because what you get there with the story of kind of Cain and Abel and Noah and the people of his generation, you get this cycle of humanity sinning, deserving nothing but judgment from God, and yet God choosing to be gracious and merciful to some and saving them. We see God acting as a saviour in those situations, which all works up to the calling of Abraham. Abraham, the kind of father figure, the starting point of the Old Testament people of God, of the nation of Israel. A guy to whom God, or a guy whom God calls, makes promises to, makes a covenant with. And the promises are basically a promise to restore back to Eden, back to what was the plan of God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. It's a promise that saving from this awful thing that's happened is going to come. As the rest of the Bible is waiting for, how is that salvation promise going to be fulfilled? How is it going to become? Become a reality. And of course, also in the promises to Abraham, there's a promise that this will be for all nations. All nations will experience and benefit from this salvation. As the story goes on, the promise to Abraham starts to become a reality because the people do become numerous, but then of course they become enslaved in Egypt. They need saving. They need saving from slavery, saving from the oppression under Pharaoh, which is what God does, again, acting of his own initiative through Moses, the story of the Prince of Egypt, the plagues, all that kind of stuff, passing through the Red Sea. And we see in Exodus both salvation by a substitute, the Passover lamb dies, rather than the oldest son of the um, Israelites die. And then also salvation through kind of um, conquer or victory or triumph as they pass through the Red Sea. 
and the, uh, they, so they escape judgment, they pass safely through the sea, but actually the sea comes down on the Egyptians. There's salvation through judgment, salvation through uh, victory and triumph in that way. So God has saved his people. They are now the people of God as their own kind of uh, nation, out on their own, ready to forge their own life. But what's so striking and what becomes so apparent in the Old Testament story is, yes, there's been salvation, but it's only been external salvation. They've been saved from some external circumstances of slavery under Pharaoh, but their hearts haven't been changed. There's still a slavery inside that Paul's going to talk about in Romans. The problem of death ultimately hasn't been dealt with. And so this covenant is made where they're told they're going to receive God's blessing if they keep his law, which isn't them getting saved. They've already been saved. They're already God's people. But here's how they live within and experience his blessing by keeping his law. But the whole Old Testament narrative will show us they can't do that. That although they've been saved from slavery, Actually, they're still enslaved to sin. They can't live God's way. And so eventually that means God judges in the exile, a repeat of the expulsion from Eden. Again, they're taken away from God's place. Again, they kind of lose their status as God's people under his rule and blessing. Again, they're in a situation where they need to experience salvation. And so we're meant to get to the end of the Old Testament and have this quandary of the people of God are in this awful situation because human sin is so powerful and pervasive we can't escape from it. But also God, right from the very start, has always promised to save. And we're meant to be left with this kind of tension of there's this awful situation where there's this promise of salvation, but sins muck it all up. How on earth is God going to do it? And that, of course, will return the page. And the answer, how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through sending his own son. Jesus comes, Jesus, the one whose name means God saves, comes to enact salvation, to fulfill those promises, to deal with the problem of sin, to get us back to Eden, to give us true salvation. Jesus takes up the mission of Israel, succeeding where they fail. He lives a perfect life, not enslaved to sin, fulfilling the law perfectly. And then he dies as a substitute, like the Passover lamb, salvation through substitute. He's experiencing our punishments that we truly can be freed, not just from external stuff, but internally can be freed from the power and the um, punishment for sins. Again, Paul's going to expand that a lot for us in Romans. Such that now, the age we're living in, the church age, we as believers who are united into Christ experience that internal salvation, as we experience that full-hearted salvation, total and utter forgiveness, a new heart, freedom from the power of sin, which allows also the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us and be changing us and transforming us and empowering us to live God's way so that we get to be God's people. We get to be God's place because he dwells in us and we get to experience God's rule and blessing. He saved us from the power of sin and restored us to Eden-like conditions, all of which is a time when we're waiting for the return of Jesus, the ultimate consummation of and uh, total completion, as it were, of salvation. When sin is utterly done away with, when all of God's enemies, all the powers that have opposed him are utterly done away with, when we as God's people live for eternity with him in perfection, in, as God's people, in God's place, knowing his rule and blessing, we will have been totally, utterly saved from sin and the impacts of sin and restored to how things should have been at the very beginning or were at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. The whole of the story of scripture is a story of salvation. That actually everything goes wrong because of sin. 
but God promises all the way through he's going to save. Even though we are unable to do our bit, as it were, he steps in. He becomes a human. He comes and uh, does all the stuff necessary in order to enact a full and true salvation. Salvation is always a, a theme and a thought to have in mind as you're reading the story of Scripture. It's a second lens. And the final lens, which is where we're spending more of our time, we're going to pause in just a moment to do activity in this, is salvation and the individual. It's kind of that question, we just had the, we had salvation in God, we've had salvation and the kind of big picture of the Bible story and kind of the people of God as a whole. What about how does salvation and the doctrine relate to us as individuals? How do we come to experience salvation and what happens when we do? And here, theologians often talk about the ordo salutis, because theologians like to try and show off and use Latin. This means the order of salvation and the kind of train of different things that we experience in salvation, which is more actually a logical progression rather than a kind of chronological one in time. It's not necessarily um, in this, or not all the elements are particularly in a, a particular order. And there's debate over the order. And actually this concept kind of comes from Romans 8. It's hinted at in Romans 8, where Paul talks about us um, being uh, foreknown and then predestined, being uh, called, being justified and being glorified. This idea of this is kind of road of order of different elements of salvation that we experience. As I mentioned, the, the order of these is sometimes a bit debated, but generally speaking, this order of salvation is seen as election, which is God choosing people to be saved. And we're going to unpack these, so don't worry about getting all these now. Calling, where God speaks to both our heads and our hearts through the gospel message. Regeneration, which is where God does something to bring new life into an individual. Conversion, where faith and repentance are granted to us by God so we can respond to him. Justification, God declaring the individual to be in a right legal standing with him, that total and utter forgiveness. Adoption, being brought into the family of God as a son or daughter of him. All of those we're going to unpack in the next bit of the session. And then also two, which I think you look at in the coming sessions across the rest of this year. Sanctification, God transforming us to be more like Jesus, to live his way. And finally, glorification, God raising us with resurrection bodies to live with him in glory. So we're going to use the rest of this session to unpick those six elements. But first we're going to pause and just in your table, take five minutes just to discuss these four statements you should have in your notes. And it's a discussion to think, do you think these statements are true or are false? Based on some of what's been said and what we're going to say, don't worry if you find out you get them wrong. That's why we're here. We're here to learn. But have a discussion. You may agree or disagree on your tables. See what you think. Are these statements true or false? Just five minutes. And then we'll come back and we'll unpack the order of salvation. Okay. I'm interested to know, which tables found it easy to agree with each other? Or did you, did you find it easy to agree? Okay, some tables on the same page, some not. Any, anybody who thought, uh, well, listen, anybody who thought they were all true? Yeah. Okay. Anybody who thought they were all false? I think our opinion was mostly that they're actually quite complicated and that they might... Anybody agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> Very, so does that mean most, table, most people thought a mix of some true, some false? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I think they're all false. Uh, ooh. And... Uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see why probably as we go through. If we don't, we can certainly kind of unpick them uh, at the end of it. Let's... Um, 
let's start to walk, walk, work through these different elements of salvation. See if it does answer that for you. If it doesn't, we'll come back and unpick some a little bit later. So let's start on election. The first step, God elects some people to be saved, not based on anything in them, but based on his free choice. This is saying salvation starts completely and utterly with God and his free choice of some people, which is rooted in his love, not rooting anything in people. Which is why I think statement number one, by the way, is false, because salvation doesn't start with an individual's choice to trust in Jesus. It starts in God's choice of them. This is a tricky doctrine, sometimes an unpopular doctrine, but I think it's incredibly hard to get away from in the biblical account. We're going to see when we go through Romans that Romans 9 to 11 are really wrestling in part with the doctrine of election and the concept of election. And people says, uh, Paul says in Romans 9 to 11, as we'll see, that people choose to turn and respond to Jesus because God has chosen them to do so. And he also says that the people who don't turn to respond to Jesus and salvation do so because of their own unbelief. And that sounds to us like it's kind of tension. How do those two things go together? But what's striking is basically Romans 9 says people choose Jesus because God chose them to do so. And Romans 10 says people don't choose Jesus because they choose not to do so. And Paul says, there you go. And he kind of places these two things in parallel. Certainly, sorry. So Romans 9, Paul says, and we'll get to it when we get to Romans, that People choose Jesus and respond to Jesus because of God's choice of them and God's ordaining them to do that. And Romans 10, he says, people who reject Jesus to do so because of their own unbelief. And that's kind of a bit of a tension, potentially, but he just places them side by side. He doesn't particularly try to explain how they relate to each other, but he says these are the two statements we hold to be true in order to understand what's kind of going on. We'll unpack that more as we get there, as I say. But so I just think the idea of God choosing some is very hard to escape from, actually, in Scripture. In Romans 9, one of the examples Paul gives, which is a helpful one, he talks of Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac and of Rebekah, back in Genesis. And he says of them, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of work, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. So usually the younger serves the older, but actually it was the younger, it was Jacob who was the chosen one out of the two by God through whom the promises of the line would go. And Paul is pointing out that was told to Rebecca before these boys were born. And he says it explicitly, it wasn't because of works, it was because of him who calls. So it's not that God chooses knowing that people will do good stuff, or God chooses because he looks down the timeline and knows that person will respond by faith, therefore I'm choosing them. Paul's explicitly saying they hadn't done anything. It wasn't because of their doing, it was because of God's calling. It's one of the clearest statements of the reality of election. There are lots of other examples. There are other examples in Paul. One would be Ephesians 1, this song about all the spiritual blessings we receive in Christ. He talks about Christ even as well, God, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Again, before we've done anything, before anything even existed other than God himself, God chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the implication is if the choosing was to become holy and blameless, it must have not been holy and blameless before. Again, it's not going to be anything good in us that we're chosen. 1 Thessalonians 1 is interesting. Paul there is reassuring the Thessalonians they can know they've been chosen by God because the fact that they responded to the gospel, the gospel came to them in power as saving truth, not just as empty words, is the proof of God's choosing. 
So actually when someone responds to the gospel, it's not, oh no, but had I been chosen? Well, yes, because otherwise we wouldn't respond to the gospel. Paul says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know it? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and with the Holy Spirit and full conviction. It's not just in the letters of Paul. You get it all over the New Testament. Get it in somewhere like Acts, where Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were appointed by God. Well, 1 Peter talks about the elect exiles, those being recipients of election. Or them as a chosen race, chosen by God. And to go right to the end of the Bible, Revelation 13, the beast representative of um, the power of the enemy is allowed authority on earth. All on earth worship him, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Clear implication, some people's name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. It's a consistent message throughout New Testament and actually Old Testament as well that salvation is based on God's election. And quite understandably, we often struggle with that. There are some objections or at least questions that we might raise. Let's just touch on two of those. One common one we really wrestle with, Will, doesn't the concept of election destroy the idea of free will? Destroy the idea that we have free will to make choices which are uh, important to do as it were? And this one I think we've got to here link it to the wider question, or it links into the wider question of God's providence in human freedom. It's just one example of the tension, potentially, between Scripture seeming to say that God ordains and controls all things, and yet also actually talking about human freedom. But I think what's important is we've got to let the extent of and the form of human freedom be defined by Scripture not defined by our own thinking, not defined by our own philosophy. I think that's where we tend to get a bit stuck here. Our views of free will, as we tend to talk of it, tend to be shaped more by uh, kind of philosophy and modern thought than they actually are by the teaching of Scripture. And so what Scripture is really clear on is we as humans make real choices and we are held responsible for those real choices. That's very clear throughout Scripture in lots of different ways. Even the fact that we're, the fact that we're culpable for our sin recognises that. The fact that actually choosing to respond to Jesus in the Gospel is a re- real choice which has consequences shows that as well. But that doesn't mean that God can't somehow be behind those real choices for which we are held responsible and have real consequences. And that seems to be the teaching of Scripture. We hold these two things together. That's we make real choices of real consequences and God is behind those real choices with real consequences. He's in control to such an extent that that happens. And Scripture seems to indicate he's in control to such an extent that God also is in control of our desires. So it's not that God ordains things and we end up doing things that we really don't want to do as if we're some sort of puppet in the hands of the puppet master. Actually, it's that God's control is down to the level of our desires. So we always do what we want to do. We're making the choice. But actually further back in the chain of command, as it were, or the chain of how things are happening, is the control of God. And in that sense, the providence of God, the control of God, and our choice and responsibility become compatible. And so theologians talk about compatibilist uh, understanding of how we put the sovereignty and providence of God together with the reality of human choice and human freedom. And so basically the Bible shows us we can make real choices that in the strictest terms aren't actually completely free. 
And actually our choice to respond to God's offer of salvation is a very good example of that. It's a real choice we make, but that doesn't mean it's not actually outside, that doesn't mean it's completely free or outside of God's control. If we're going to sit under scripture, listening to what it says, I think holding together that tension is what it asks us to do. And so, election, does it destroy free will? Well, not when we understand what the Bible actually teaches us, what it means to have a will as a human and to make choices. The other one we could pick up, a potential objection, problem here is, well, the Bible says that God desires all people to be saved, which it absolutely does. Places like 1 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3 as well. How do we put together the Bible saying God wants all people to be saved, with the Bible also saying that God chooses seemingly only some to be saved? Well, the starting point is everyone agrees God could save everyone. God would be perfectly within his ability to do that. And yet the implication of this doctrine is that he doesn't do so. So we've got to ask here, what is it that explains the fact that God's will, as he's expressed in scripture, doesn't get fulfilled? What's the middle term that explains why this is going on? And there's kind of two options. One is to say it's because God's more concerned about preserving free will. And so a common argument, sometimes known as the free will argument, is actually God wants all people to be saved, but because he's so concerned to maintain our free will, not all people end up being saved because he has to let us have the choice not to do that, which is quite hard to square with what we've already seen in Scripture. The second choice is actually that God is more concerned about his glory. God wants all people to be saved, but his primary, primary concern is about glorifying himself. And maybe it's the case that actually God can bring more glory to himself by choosing some and not choosing others. And the key question is, which of those two, preserving free will or promoting the glory of God, best fits with the biblical pattern? And I think promoting the glory of God very much fits better with the biblical pattern. There's lots of evidence to say that everything God does is rightly motivated by the desire to bring glory to himself. And actually, we'll see when we get to Romans 9, the one place, I think, in the Bible where there's a a potential attempt at explaining why is it that God only chooses some is in Romans 9. And it's so fascinating how Paul does it. He he puts in the language of what if. It's, It's like we're at the very limits of what humans can understand and can know. And he's not saying, here's the line, here's the clear thing. He's saying, what if maybe this is how it's working and basically his point is maybe God gets more glory actually if he only chooses some because basically it's maybe the light shines brighter if there's a background of darkness maybe your white thing looks perfectly white when actually it's up against a background of darkness that is what Paul is saying of maybe that is what God is doing the implication is God gets more glory actually through his choice to act through election in this way And therefore, theologians distinguish between God's revealed will, what is stated in Scripture of his desire for all people to be saved, and what's sometimes called his his secret will, what actually happens because he's motivated ultimately by his glory. It's a really hard and and rightly kind of emotive matter for us to wrestle with. But it's one of those times we've got to think, actually, how do we sit under Scripture, not imposing on it what we wanted to say, I think it should say, or our own ways of thinking, but being led by what it says. And I think that's what we get when we do that. And then let's just briefly talk also about the opposite of election, election, which is known as reprobation. Because actually, if God chooses some to be saved, does that mean he chooses others to not be saved? That's, again, an important question we then need to ask. And the reality is, again, if we put ourselves under Scripture, letting it say what it says, there is uh, indications that God does choose that some will not be saved. But really importantly, there's quite stark differences in how the Bible talks about election for salvation. 
and reprobation or being chosen not to be saved. Just first, some evidence, some New Testament texts about this. Again, Romans is going to be helpful for us. Romans 9 talks about God enduring of much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Paul seems to think there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He talks about the example of Pharaoh, whose heart God hardened, and says God can harden whomever he wills. God's in control there. In Romans 11, he says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. It seems there are two different things going on there. Or 1 Peter talks about people who don't respond to Jesus, don't believe in him, and he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Even stronger language, they were destined, implied by God, to disobey um, the word. Or Jude, the little letter of Jude, says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. Scripture seems to imply there's designation for condemnation. But it's really important to notice then the differences between election and this idea of reprobation. What is that salvation, as we already said, is an act of God. It's all, of his, it's all his work, all his doing, all rooted in who he is. It's all about grace. It's unrelated to our actions. It's utterly undeserved by us. We shouldn't receive it, but the goodness of God means we do receive it. Condemnation is very different because that results in the actions of humans. That is God acting justly and rightly, and justly and rightly responding to the reality of human sin of which we are all guilty. It's what we deserve. And such reprobation is just God allowing us to continue down the path that we have chosen and we have put ourselves on. We're going to see it in Romans 1. How does God, in present tense and present time, pour out his wrath? It's by allowing sinners to continue on the path they've set themselves on. It's not God taking someone off a path and putting them on a terrible path. It's them having chosen a terrible path and God allowing them to continue down that. That's radically different to God saying, I'm taking you off this path and putting you on a path of salvation. There's a real uh, imbalance in how election and reprobation work, and that's very important. It's also important to note that while we can say scripturally, I think that ultimately wrong actions are the result of what God has predetermined. He talks there about people destined not to obey the word. God has never held morally culpable for those things. And that's important throughout scripture, that even when God is seeing at some level of causation to be behind bad and evil, he's never really held morally culpable. Again, that's an important thing we have to remember that's part of that compatibilism doctrine I talked about. And perhaps most importantly, there is never any rejoicing over the reprobation and over the condemnation of the wicked. Over the doctrine of election, there is great rejoicing in the Bible. The scripture is explicitly clear that God never rejoices or delights over the destruction of the wicked, to use the biblical language. And so there's just this great asymmetry, this great difference, uh, this gulf really, between election and reprobation. That's why I think the concept of double predestination you may have heard of, which basically says, no, God chooses some to be saved and some to be condemned as if they're completely equal things God does is a very unhelpful doctrine because it misses totally the fact that scripture presents a great imbalance in how these things actually work. And just finally on election, how should we view election? Because let's be honest, we often feel a bit uncomfortable about it and there are legitimate questions to be wrestled with and asked with. But sometimes I think we just dismiss it a bit as kind of too complex or too difficult and can sometimes even in some contexts make a bit of a joke of it, which is strikingly different to the New Testament response to it and reaction to it, which is incredibly positive. In the New Testament, election is seen as a reason to worship God. 
Ephesians 1 would be an example of that, that kind of hymn of praise or spiritual blessings. Because we're being chosen by God and predestined by God for adoption as sons, it's a reason to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Election is also seen as a reason for confidence. If actually our salvation starts not with our good idea to choose to follow Jesus, but God's choice of us, that's a much more secure basis for our salvation. If our salvation is rooted in the fact that God has chosen us, we can be confident that he will help us to persevere. He will see us through. It's much more reassuring and we have much more confidence when our salvation is rooted in God as the initiative, not in us as the initiative. And it's fuel for mission. Some people say that the doctrine of uh, election is really dangerous because we're going to get lazy about mission. If we think it's about God choosing, not people responding, we're just going to sit around and not do anything. But that's just not the case. It's fuel for mission and it's wonderful if really free for mission because our role is just to go out there and proclaim the gospel and because God has elected some some people will respond when we proclaim the gospel the pressure isn't on us to persuade and convince saying it's not about our success or failure in mission it's about our obedience to do what God's called us to do to preach the gospel through which he acts based on his choice and we see in scripture that actually the doctrine of lecturing is fuel for mission. God tells Paul at one point in where this Acts 18 that he's got many people in his city. And he could go, oh great, well the doctrine of election means they're chosen, so they'll come to follow Jesus, so I can go elsewhere because they're kind of sorted. But actually when Paul hears there's many people chosen by God in this city, he therefore stays there for a year and six months. It motivates him to preach the gospel in that city. The doctrine of election actually fuels mission and wonderfully takes any sense of pressure off us to have a responsibility to see people saved in that way. That is the first and one of the most tricky of the elements of salvation. So don't worry, we're not going to spend that much time on all of them or have that many difficult things to wrestle with. Let's do one more just before we go to a coffee break. We'll then have coffee, a bit of space, questions, and then we'll move on to the others. Let's talk about calling. This is where God works in someone's heart as they hear the gospel such that they respond in repentance and faith. The calling of God is one of the things mentioned in that list in Romans 8 that I talked about. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And actually that verse is really helpful because notice that those whom he called, he also justified. There's an inevitable link, a kind of inevitable consequence of being called is that you're justified, which shows us this is a call that actually makes something happen. It's a call which uh, has a result always. And so sometimes also theologians distinguish between a general call and an effectual call. A general call is just the gospel being preached in any context or in a conversation, whatever it might be, the invitation being laid out. It's kind of natural communication and natural hearing. But the effectual call isn't just about the words being communicated. It's about God calling someone's heart, God doing something in someone's heart as those words go out such that actually it evokes a response in them, such that those who receive the effectual call will also be justified because God's doing something in that and doing something through that. The best example I think of this is in Acts 16, where Paul preaches in Philippi, and Luke records this. He says, One heard us who was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And that's a great picture of what the effectual call is like. The gospel is being preached and God opens a heart to pay attention, to receive, to respond to what is said. That's what it means. Well, that's what we mean by the effectual call.
or 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, To this God called you through our gospel, so you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that God calls through the gospel. The gospel is being preached, but God is calling through that and doing something in someone's heart. It's the effectual call. Again, it's one of these early stages of the order of salvation that proves it's all rooted in God's actions. God is the initiator of salvation. It's only when God calls in that effectual way that someone will actually respond to the gospel. It's just about 10 o'clock, so let's pause there. Let's have like seven minute coffee break or something, be back ready to start by 10 past. We'll start with a quick bit of Q&A. If you've got any questions about what we said, bring those then, and we'll do the next steps as well. Any questions at this stage emerging from what we've discussed so far? No, was, no questions always means either people have got it all totally or are utterly bamboozled. So, shall we hand up? Wonderful. I don't know if I can articulate it very clearly, but you know this thing about destination? <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always reconciled destination by thinking that people are destined not to be saved because God knows they're not going to respond. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, yeah. So, yes, that God's yes choice is based on what's going to happen further down the timeline. No, I think, I was thinking, I was God's a good God. I find it really hard, and I'm sure loads of other people, everybody else does too, to believe that he chooses not to save some people. So is it that, oh I know, is it that they're destined not to be saved because they're not going to choose salvation? So yeah, so is it that God destined someone to save because he's, as it were, looked down the timeline yeah. and still see that there will be the people who don't respond to Jesus? I think that's what you were saying. Yeah. But the think about looking down the timeline, just that, oh I know, Yes, I think where where a biblical perspective clashes with that is the fact that these choosings are spoken of as being before the foundation of the world. So they're not as time goes on, kind of responsive to it. Well, that's what I'm not saying. I'm not thinking about over time. I'm thinking of people. It's hard, isn't it? It is, it is hard, yeah, yeah. And these are exactly the kind of wrestlings of, gosh, actually. But uh, it's, hard, it's, it's hard, like, on the logical level, it's hard. So compute it. And then it is hard on the emotional level. I think it's okay for us to... And in fact, we, if we get time to get enough detail, Romans 9... I think, you know, Romans 9 basically makes the point of people will respond to Jesus because God chooses them in a few verses and then spends the whole rest of the chapter... So nine. It's again nine. Sorry, Romans nine is a problem. When you say nine, you go, Whoa! Sorry. So Romans nine says that people respond to Jesus because God has chosen them to do so. It's the doctrine of election, pure as it were. And basically says that in the first few verses, pretty much, and spends the rest of the chapter, which isn't a short chapter, wrestling with problematic implications of that. So even Paul, it'd be reassured that even Paul gets this is a complex and emotive doctrine for us. So I find that reassuring. It's okay that we have these kind of questions and thoughts. Mentioning Pharaoh is helpful though. It's interesting when you look through Exodus 
talks both about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So some people say, well, God's hardening is only actually what Pharaoh is doing, such as not that God chooses. And there is definitely interplay between the two. It is notably chronologically that God first says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh's own hardening of his heart seems to be an outworking of God's hardening of his heart. But then it kind of becomes these like gradual steps of because Pharaoh hardens his heart, God hardens it more and so on and so forth. Which again we'll see in Romans 1 is the pattern of how does God respond presently to sinners who aren't in Christ? He allows them to continue in their sin. It's that thing of the, we set ourselves in the path and God allows us to continue down the path that we've set ourselves on. Um, and that's the thing, yeah, the same with Pharaoh, the interplay between God and Pharaoh, and that is kind of interesting and helpful. Let's, let's move on from election just so we get to the other elements of the order of salvation, but it's good to wrestle with these things. I think we've got up to regeneration. God causes a person to be born again, receiving new spiritual life, such that they will turn to God for salvation. All these first stages we're seeing are about God's actions. It requires for God to act first. He has the initiative. Until God acts, we are dead in our sins, and so we are incapable of, and are interested in, responding to him. A corpse can't respond. And that's basically the kind of image that scripture is using. Ephesians 2 would be the classic statement of this, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. If we're dead, we can't do anything, we can't respond in any way. And so it requires God to act and bring new life to us. But God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 again, because of the great love which we has loved, with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It requires for God to act and God to bring life for anything else to be able to follow and be able to happen. And we often use the language of being born again for this, because this is the language Jesus uses in uh, John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, one of the uh, Pharisees, the Jewish teachers, who kind of recognises Jesus as someone special, he's working all these signs, he's clearly come from God, and so he comes to him, and uh, talks to him about the kingdom and stuff. And Jesus then talks about this thing of actually we need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom. And actually there's a, a wordplay going on, because the Greek that's in recorded there is uh, a wordplay of both saying to be born again and born from above. I think kind of born from heaven, born of God as it were. And Nicodemus, of course, at first just can't compute this. He's thinking of it in terms of being born again. How can someone who's already come out of the womb, in a sense, come out of the womb again, he's saying. And Jesus is thinking about being born from above, born by the Spirit. And that's why he goes on to talk about the Spirit moving like the wind, and it goes wherever it wants in a sense, and you know it's moved because you see its impacts. You don't see the wind, but you see the trees moving and different things moving. You see the impacts of it. He's saying in the same way you see the work of the Spirit by seeing his impacts in that he brings new life to a person. And Jesus says that this new life is being born again by the Spirit is necessary to be able to enter to the kingdom, to receive salvation, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And this is very close, really, to effectual calling. If effectual calling is God working through the gospel to do something with someone's heart, what's he doing in the heart? He brings new life there. This is, in a sense, is another concept way of conceptualising that idea. And so, in a sense, uh, effectual and calling, kind of effectual calling and regeneration work very closely hand in hand. And a few just kind of um, implications of those. One, as I keep saying, salvation is all the work with God. All these first steps are God doing all this stuff before we do anything. Uh, if God didn't work in hearts, no one would respond to the gospel. 
That again speaks to us about our security. Our salvation is rooted in God's actions, not in our actions. That's wonderfully reassuring of the security we have in that. And again, as we had with um, the special call, there's confidence here in mission. That actually God will cause people to be born again. He will do the heart work that allows them to respond to the gospel. All we have to do is proclaim the gospel and it's God who is doing the work. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, as we plant seeds and we water seeds, but only God can bring the growth. Same idea of bringing life. And when that life is brought, when God's done his stuff, as it were, that brings us to conversion, which is where we actually have our kind of human response, our willing response to the gospel in repentance and in faith. When we hear the gospel and we experience that effectual call and regeneration, we then respond in faith, trusting in Jesus and in repentance, turning away from our walking away from him. It's called exactly what Jesus called us to. The first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark are his call to people to repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance, I could say well, there are three elements of it. There's kind of a thinking element. There's this intellectual recognition about sin, that we have sinned, that sin is wrong. But there's also a feeling attached to that. There's a, a sorrow, a grief over our sin, and actually an action that we seek to turn away from sin. And all three of those are tied up in repentance and kind of necessary for repentance. And so repentance can kind of begin in a moment. We can have that acknowledgement of sin, that sorrow over sin. <laughs> Sometimes the action takes longer, but there'll be the kind of the seeds of repentance and the desire to change will always be seen. And just as a pastoral thing, it's always helpful for us to realise often the outworkings of repentance can take some time and can be not linear and can be a bit messy. It doesn't mean there isn't genuine repentance. And actually, it starts in our thinking and our feeling, our sorrow over our sin, our acknowledgement of our sin, and repentance comes over time, which isn't to say we want to be um, relaxed about sin and not be serious about repentance being put into action, but I think it's important for us to realise, and we've all experienced our own life, that often is a real journey over time. And the faith also has three elements. There's an acknowledgement of the truth of the gospel and of God's standards. There's also the feeling side, our hearts being orientated towards God rather than away from him. And an action, an active choice to seek to live God's way. By faith we seek to follow him and trust him. And actually trust is the helpful word. I think biblical faith is most easily conceived of as trust. And in Greek the same word is used for the same two kind of concepts. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement of something faith actually it's a trusting it's a holding on to the way we might trust someone to help us or support us and it's choosing to trust in Jesus to save us and clinging on to him for that which I think is a helpful way of conceiving of this which takes us to justification which is going to be very prominent in Romans and really is the reason we do this session first because getting our heads a bit around justification is going to help us in Romans in justification, God declares that we're in a right legal standing before him, so we are righteous. He sees us and treats us as if we've done everything we should have done and nothing that we should not have done. And this is all possible because of what Christ has done. And the doctrine of justification is often tricky for us as English speakers because of an annoying limitation of the English language. You'll see there's a little table on your notes there. So in Greek, there is one word group used for the concept of justification. 
um, the dick word group, dikaiosune, dikaios, dikaioto. In English, we have two word groups we use to translate that. So when you hear about justification and just and to justify, and righteousness and righteous, it's basically the same thing, but it doesn't sound like it is, and we don't kind of realise that. And so it's just really helpful to always have in mind that justification and righteousness are overlapping concepts. And when you're reading about one or thinking about one, you also think about the other, and that can just help us to get a bit closer. And you'll notice on the table, the empty box is the annoying one. We have this right righteousness word group, righteousness and righteous, there is no verb, no action word in that word group. It would be something like to righteous, but we don't have that word. But it is helpful sometimes to think of to justify as being to righteous, because that's what it is. And that just helps us to realise, oh, actually, justification is about righteousness. And just getting our heads into a place of relating those two can do a lot to help us begin to grasp this um, concept and this doctrine. And it's one of the kind of controversial elements of the doctrine of salvation. There are various different ways of conceiving of justification. A traditional Protestant reading would be it's about a legal declaration. It's God acting as judge, declaring someone to be righteous, i.e. in a right legal standing before him, which isn't an injustice because actually of the work of Christ, that he has paid the price for sin and lived a perfect life. But then a traditional Catholic understanding would be really quite different. It's one of the stark differences between Protestant theology and Catholic theology. In Catholic theology, justification is about a person being transformed through both God and the individual cooperating together. And in uh, Catholic theology, grace is infused into a person which enables them and empowers them to do good works that earn a favour from God. So grace is still really prominent in Catholic theology, but grace enables you to do the good stuff which earns merit before God. So you are, you are earning merit before God by your actions, but that's only happening because of what God has done. So it's still based on grace, but it's a very different way of thinking about it. And what gets mixed together, you mix together basically the forgiveness of sins, sanctification, which is our being transformed to become more holy, more like Jesus, and internal renewal all kind of get linked together. So whereas Protestants separate out justification, being forgiven, and sanctification, becoming like Jesus, living a holy life, Catholic theology uh, mixes the two together. And very self-consciously, the, um, the Council of Trent, if you know what that is, actually explicitly states in Catholic theology that those things are mixed together. But then also there's a third perspective that's appeared in the last uh, number of decades called the New Perspective on Paul, which basically says justification isn't about uh, legal standing before God at all, it's about covenant membership. Justification is, are you part of the covenant people of God? Are you part of this group of people who on the final day will be saved by God? And they see the New Testament doctrine of justification as being about that thing of being in the people of God. And that previously you were in the people of God by being Jewish, and particularly by things like circumcision, the food laws, the Sabbath, they were boundary markers marking you out as part of this group. But actually with the coming of Christ, those boundary markers get cast away. Now actually faith in Christ is the marker that puts you in the people of God and therefore Gentiles as well as Jews can be in that group. And so from the new perspective on Paul, justification basically becomes about how do Gentiles get into the people of God. So these three very different understandings of this doctrine, which means we want to ask what's right, what does the Bible actually say? 
One helpful foundation is the Bible indicates that justification is a legal matter, which largely pushes out the new perspective on Paul. The word is used in that way. So think of Luke 7, Jesus talking to the crowds about John the Baptist, saying who he was, uh, and those who had been baptized, those, sorry, he's saying who John the Baptist was. And the people who had been baptized by John, we then hear about. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors, they justified God. He's saying they declared God just. They're not changing who God is. And they're not putting him in the people of God. They're declaring that God is just. God is righteous. They justified God. In Romans 8, who should bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who's to condemn. Clearly the opposite of being justified is being condemned. Condemned is having a charge brought against you. It's a legal matter about legal status. So that's one helpful foundation. We know that it's about legal status. And I think the key verse for understanding this doctrine actually comes from Proverbs. It comes from the Old Testament, one of the books of wisdom. Proverbs 17, verse 15 He who justifies, or he who makes righteous the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, let's again, it's a legal declaration. And notice what he's saying you should do. He's talking about what a judge should do. A judge should say, here's a righteous person, and he should justify the righteous person, acknowledge his righteousness. But here's a wicked person who's done the wrong, so we're condemning the wicked person. The right thing to do is to justify good people, righteousness, to acknowledge their right legal standing, and to condemn wicked people, people who've done stuff wrong. And so it's a legal thing, which I think means it's not about covenant membership, it's not the new perspective on Paul. It's a declaration that a judge makes, which means it's not an infusion or something to transform us, as in Catholic theology. I think the traditional Protestant reading is the best. It's about God being a judge, God passing sentence, God declaring people to be righteous. But what you might notice, if you're thinking through Proverbs 17, is what Proverbs 17 says shouldn't happen is exactly what God does in the Gospel. Proverbs 17 seems to pose us his humongous problem. Proverbs 17 says a good judge justifies good people and condemns bad people. What happens in the Gospel? God justifies bad people. Seems that God is going against his own word. What is going on here? And this actually is basically what Romans 1 to 3 are doing and explaining, as we'll see. Some people will say Romans 1 to 3 are a justification of God. They're a defense, actually, of God and of his actions. How can God justify and say people justify the wicked? How can he justify people who have done the wrong stuff? The answer is Jesus. Jesus comes as the middle term of the equation that makes that possible. Jesus' death, paying the price for sins, makes it possible to say, for God to say, these people have done the wrong things, I'm treating them as if they haven't, because the price has been paid for those wrong things over here. And so God goes against Proverbs 17, but it's not a miscarriage of justice, because the work of Christ, what Jesus has done, makes it just for God to do that. And that is at the core of Romans 1 to 3, particularly in what Paul is saying there. Paul says in Romans 3, we're justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice we'll talk about, by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is the middle term. Justification is possible because of him. 
And he says this was to show God's righteousness, to show that he does abide to Proverbs 17, because, one, in his forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. Jesus needed to come and pay the price for sins, otherwise it was unjust for God not to judge the sins of his people in the Old Testament. Someone had to take that punishment so that God would be a just judge. And two, it was also to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Christ needed to come, do what he did, die the death he died, so that God could still be just, and also God could justify the unjust. He's the middle term that makes these equations work. We'll see they're saying more of that when we get to um, Romans itself. But one last thing we should talk about in justification is, that's all Paul particularly, I'm talking about there, but actually if you think about another writer in the New Testament, think of James, it can easily sound like James has got a very different view of justification, he's saying very different stuff. Paul's very big on justification is through the work of Christ, it's all based on faith. Not you doing, not your works, you're receiving it as a gift taken hold of by faith, that trust we talked about. James says, James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It sounds at first like Paul's saying justification by faith, James justification by works, big clash, big kind of argument. Famously, why Luther, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, called, uh, now is this apocryphal? He famously called it an epistle of straw, but even as I say it, it's actually true. He's thought to have said it was an epistle of straw because he thought actually he's this wonderful doctrine of justification by faith in Paul and James is saying actually it's by works. But we need to understand what James is saying in context. He's asking the question, can faith without works save? And actually saying faith without works is dead. Basically, it's not real saving faith. It's not actually what we're talking about. He uses the example of Abraham to challenge the idea that you can have faith without having works. Abraham, the example Paul also uses of someone justified by faith in Genesis 15. And he points out the fact that actually Abraham was justified by his action of offering Isaac. In Genesis 22, when he takes his son, he's going to sacrifice him in obedience to God, but God intervenes. And James says Abraham was justified to actions, justified by his works. But James knows actually the scriptures say a few chapters earlier, Genesis 15, before 22, that he was justified by faith there. And so what James must mean is not that his legal status was declared on the basis of his works, but it was demonstrated by, it was proved by. Abraham's good work in trusting God, even to the extent of sacrificing his son, didn't earn him favour from God. It proved that he'd already been justified back in chapter 15. And so what James is saying is these works are the outworking of justification. They're the external proof of justification. They're not the grounds of it. It's not actually contradicting. And Paul would say exactly the same and does just in kind of different language. And so the little phrase of the Protestant reformers is quite helpful. They used to say that faith alone justifies. It's purely based on faith, but the faith which justifies is never alone. True justifying faith is always accompanied by works. That's the point James is making. So both Paul and James are on the same page. Justification is based on faith, not on works. But then our works are the outworking of and actually the external proof of what God has done internally. And we'll see that in play in the book of Romans. Uh, when we get to the middle section particularly. 
And then finally, it says to talk about adoption. God adopts us as his children so that we can be secure in his love and we can become his heirs. Salvation could so easily have stopped at justification. That's already more than we deserve, already more than God has to do. It's a, a free gift motivated by his love and his goodness, no obligation on him to do that. He could have kind of just said, I'm going to declare you not guilty, declare you free from your sins and a right legal standing and kind of send you off to live your life on your own. And yet, wonderfully, amazingly, he doesn't say that. He says, and now I'm adopting you. Now I'm welcoming you into my family as my child. Justification, in some ways, is maybe the most fundamental aspect of salvation. It's the thing that deals with the problem of sin. But adoption is probably the most wonderful and glorious aspect of salvation. We get brought into that intimate relationship with God. And that's a consistent theme throughout the New Testament, that all the people of God are adopted as his children. I've probably put the verses in your notes there. You see it in John's Gospel, you see it in Romans, you see it in Hebrews, you see it in 1 Peter, you see it in 1 John. Pretty much every author in the New Testament makes this point that we are adopted as the children of God. And in the ancient world where these guys are thinking and talking and where Paul's writing, adoption was a legal reality just like it is today in the sense of an adopted child was viewed in the eyes of the law as just as equal or equal footing as a biological child. And people would often adopt someone, sometimes even a favoured slave, to become their, uh, their heir, to take on their property and their, their name and such like. They were treated just as if they were a biological child. It's a, a serious reality. I often like to point out it's not like, you know, we can adopt like a sloth or a bit of the rainforest or something and then once you decide oh I'm sick of paying that subscription it's gone the kind of no commitment no relationship this isn't that kind of adoption this is genuine real serious relational committed ongoing adoption that's being talked about and Paul as we'll see in Romans 8 talks about some of the blessings and also responsibilities in a sense that come with adoption in Romans 8 that there's freedom from fear in context particularly being fear of condemnation as children of God we know there's no condemnation for us we know we've been justified therefore there is no fear of condemnation we can always run to him confident that whatever we've done actually there's no condemnation there's intimacy with God. That thing Paul talks about, the Spirit crying out to us, Abba, Father. Abba being the Aramaic word for, for kind of daddy or papa, but whereas we tend to reserve daddy or tends to be more used by younger children in our context, actually Abba is used by older people as well. It's a deep term of, uh, term of deep intimacy in relating to a father. We become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, those who will reign with Christ in the future, those who will be heirs of the fulfillment of all his promises and also the new creation to come. And one of the blessings of um, adoption, Paul says in Romans 8, is suffering. He says, we're children of God provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Actually, one of the guarantees as a child of God is that we will suffer. But as we'll see when we get to Romans 8, everything that finishes that chapter off is explaining to us how can we be sure that God still loves us even when we suffer. Because the children of God, we will suffer. So how can we be sure that God still loves us in that? And we'll get to that when we get to Romans 8. Any of time. Any more questions on the doctrine of salvation? Before, <laughs> before we move to Romans and coffee break is not too far away, so don't, um, don't worry. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I mean, every time I think about salvation, election, all of that, I just get so many questions. But I guess one of the questions that can't, uh, kind of keeps coming up is, I can see why we would preach the gospel because God has commanded us to do so. I, 
it kind of makes me think, should I be praying for people to be saved? Because I suppose, you know, so it's I've a great question, yeah, yeah. I've been for my neighbor for a long time, but now I'm thinking, is there even any point? And I'm sure, yeah, but I guess that's one of the questions I can't really resolve. I can see why I should still. As in, if God has already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why I should share the gospel with Yeah, them. yeah. Um, but. Should I pray for them to be saved? That's such a good question, yeah. I think, I think two things. One is, that question can be expanded, can't it? To, you know, why pray for anything, given that the Bible does say God's ordained all things, but the Bible does say pray. So I think actually, if we take it broadly, we think, well, the Bible, again, holds together this tension, God's ordained all things, and also says pray, and even says, no, things don't happen, you don't pray, or says, no, James, you don't have, you don't ask. And so, the sovereignty of God isn't a reason not to pray. So, so yes on that tick, in a sense. And, and how that all works is a mystery to us, but that's fine. We know that God hears our prayers, listens to our prayers, and they make a difference. So their part somehow weaved into his plan. And all, though, or, or but also, it's striking in Scripture, I think the primary prayers of the early church about mission were prayers for themselves, and prayers for boldness in proclaiming the gospel and such like. I don't think you very often, if ever, find record of the early church praying that people become Christians, but you do find them praying that they would be able to do their work and play their part in it, which I think is an interesting you know, model. So, so maybe it's both and. We pray for people to respond to the gospel, but also need to remember, remember to pray for ourselves as well. And, and I find that helpful because actually if I'm spending more time praying for myself and my role in God's mission, that actually, you know, motivates me and challenges me about what I'm going to do, not going, God, why aren't you saving this person? So it's actually quite a good discipline. I could know, I could imagine why God's done that in a sense, actually. Um, and the wonderful verse of scripture then actually is that he, by his spirit, empowers us to do that work. So, so yes, let's pray for so people to get saved, but also let's be praying for ourselves and our role in that both end. Great question. Isn't that why we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to pray? So we're knowing the mind of God, what to pray for. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, absolutely. Yeah, 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 he helps us with that. Yeah, great stuff. Any, yeah, go for it. So if we go back a step, someone step behind Elizabeth. So the whole thing, I'm still struggling with the whole idea of um, preaching the gospel to people. I mean, I get that. I guess once they've been saved and the earlier they're saved, the better in that they then have a, a longer life with God. But um, if we don't if we don't preach the gospel and they're destined to be saved anyway, is it not gonna happen anyway? So Yeah, I mean yeah, this is where we get to the limits of our knowledge, isn't it? We easily think of it as you know, these people have got the marker over them, they're gonna be they're elected, so they're gonna be saved at some point. Yeah. And then God kind of sets things in motions, and because you know, I'm trying to make a good analogy, because they are mar marked that way, it will happen at some point, in some way. Whereas actually, the reality of the extent of my being a scripture of God's control of all things is that God has ordained when and how that will happen too. So it's not just that God has only ordained all these people to get saved and they set them all off to live their lives and somehow it happens. It's actually he's ordained all things. So within his election of someone also his ordaining of how it will happen. And it may be that God has chosen you to be the person to proclaim the gospel to, to do that. And then you get, well, what if you choose not to do that? Well, that somehow must also be in God's plan. You know, this is where it goes, oh! Yeah. And so basically where it gets to, let's just hold intention. God's in control of all things, ordains and elects. I'm called to preach the gospel, I'll go and do my thing. I think, you know, we kind of have to get to that, you know, really is the limits of what we can compute <laughs> um, and what we can do. And I think it is helpful that I gave that example 
from Max and there are others of the doctrine of election motivates people like Paul to mission. And so it's just, you know, that should be a provocation to us as well. And I do think the thing of it taking the pressure off is really good. The fact that we sow seeds, we water seeds, that only God brings the growth, 1 Corinthians 3, it's really reassuring. That, that, you know, the pressure is not on me to prove myself by seeing lots of people come to salvation through my life and communicating of the gospel. The pressure is on me in a sense to communicate the gospel. And that, that bit I can do. I can control that bit. I can't control the response bit. And so the pressure is wonderfully off, I find. Is that at all helpful? <laughs> it is just so, so confusing. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. So in a, in a sense, we're, we're, God's doing what God does anyway to prepare people to be able to receive us. But they, as, as Romans 10, where it says that, that uh, how will they not hear if they have not heard? Yep. Um, so it, it, there is a kind of responsibility for us to kind of be out there preaching the gospel. But yeah, God's yeah. already laid the foundation and set the, given the ability to receive the truth of the gospel in a sense by what he's done. When, you know, um, I'm just going back to what Wendy was saying, you know, that there is still a need for them to hear. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but what I think the nuance I'm putting, I think God has ordained when and how that happens. So it's not, yeah, so that, that's, maybe that's the analogy. It's not that some people have ears that are unblocked, so that when in life they encounter the gospel, they'll become a Christian. And God goes, oh, great, that's your point, that's worked out for you. And God goes, oh, good, you found someone who preached the gospel to you over here, and you were the elect, so you responded. That's not how God is viewing it. God is viewing it as this person is elect, and at this point they will hear the gospel, at this point they respond. I, I, my, my reading of scripture is that is the extent of a level of um, the providence and ordaining of all things by, by God, I think. Is that distinction? Help explain that. Sorry, yeah, go for it. We were, with Yonks back in our life group, we were discussing about this, how the pressure of it's down on you. Mm-hmm. But then I think someone brought up the whole thing of what Mordecai said to es- Esther of her being born for such a time as this, but also saying deliverance may come from someone else. Am I? Oh, interesting. So that sometimes, that doesn't mean to excuse us, but. God might still use someone else. Is that yeah. the right way to look at it? Do you mean like if we... If we beat ourselves up... Yeah. It? And don't do we should... Don't yeah. discharge our duty. God use someone else. Is that your... I hope, I hope maybe. Yeah, well, I think it's true. Just again, I, I, I want to... I have a broad view of the providence, providence of God such that in my understanding, God would ordain that that happened. <laughs> So it's not that God goes, oh dear, that person checking out or sharing the gospel, but it's okay, I've got a second option over here. Mm. Actually, because that just leaves God in control of some things and not other things. Mm. And actually, Scripture's teaching, I think, is God is in control of all things, whereas all things kind of counsel his will, different things like that. Um, so now, now why would God ordain it that way? I don't know, but he might. And it's that thing, actually, of, it, it's all linked to how we view God's control of all things. It's ultimately what it comes back to. And that's a totally different session. But as you're hearing, I think Scripture's teaching is God is in control of all things, all things, all things. Nothing happens that's not being planned and ordained by him. <coughs> Why he does it in so, so messy, messy ways sometimes, I don't know. <laughs> but there we go. It's because we like an equation. We like to know how something works. But actually, we're called to do our bit. And God, <coughs> so we are called to 
you know, give an answer for the hope we have at all times. Yeah, yeah. But we don't know what God's going to do with that because salvation is a mystery, what God does. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. grasping hold of, actually, that is my calling, but God's a mystery, and the two are yeah. that tension. I think that's really good, yeah. And I, I think actually a mystery is the helpful word here. And sometimes people say mystery is just like a theological cop-out. But actually, it's a very biblical response to the right reality that we're the creatures and God's the creator. We're going to see this in Romans, actually. And, you know, the point where even Paul basically gets to the point of saying, this is a mystery. And then rather than going, I'm so confused, he goes, I worship. In Romans 11, that's basically what he does. And yes, I think you're right, actually. It's, it's not wrong for us to wrestle these questions, but also we have to get to the point where I shouldn't expect to understand God and how he works. But what I can do in response is say, wow, this, this displays to me the fact that God is beyond my comprehension, therefore he's worthy of worship, therefore that's what I'll do, <laughs> which is what Paul does. Let's move to Romans. That's a nice. It's a